Amen. Thank you, Blake. Praise team. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 19 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 19. I am, uh, I'm going to say something, and I hope most, many of you know it, and uh, I just I want to say it, just declare it, and I don't want you to hold me responsible for it. Um, I am a millennial. Uh, it's a confession. Um, now, I will say, I'm on the older end of the millennials. I'm one of the oldest millennials there is, so all my brothers and my sister are all Gen X, and so I feel more akin to Gen X anyway. And in, anyway, all the equivocating aside, as a millennial, there's a moment where you kind of reach uh, a threshold. You cross over a threshold. It's like a rite of passage, so to speak. Once, you, once you're there, it's like you've arrived, finally. And that moment is when you have your own Amazon Prime membership. <laughs> you finally feel like you have, you have made it. You are there. Because of that, many millennials, you'll know, and probably you yourselves, if you're not one, are adjusted to this by now. You have your own Amazon Prime membership, and you rarely ever go to a brick-and-mortar store anymore. People are quite happy to wait their two days before they get a package at their door. Now it's not uncommon to drive by someone's house and see a mound of packages outside their front door of things that they've ordered, things that they used to go to brick and mortar for. But here's the sad part about buying everything online. And they've done studies on this, and there's plenty of statistics to back it up. The rate of buyer's remorse has gone through the roof. There's, there's some stats that have come out that I think are, are really fascinating about this idea of online shopping and what it has produced in our culture. I want to read some of them to you, and some of them are very sad, okay? So here, here's one. 58% of items added to a shopping cart are purchased. 58%. So you put it in the shopping cart, and that's not a guarantee you're going to purchase it. Entire industries have risen up on how to get someone from the shopping cart to check out in the age of buying everything online. 50% of people that buy online are less likely to buy something online if the entire checkout process takes more than half a minute. Half a minute. You got half a minute. If it takes longer than that, I ain't buying it. 50%. 33% click out of purchasing if they have to re-enter their credit card information. 33% decide, you know what, I don't want it anyway. All right, this is the saddest one of all, I think. 22 seconds. 22 seconds. That is the speed at which the average American experiences second thoughts after purchasing items in their carts. So only 58% made it to the point where they went from a cart to actual purchase. If they had to re-enter their credit card information, a few of them dropped out after that. And after all that thinking and all that going, they still, 22 seconds later, thought, should I have done that? The average American says they'll start to doubt their purchase if they have to click just four different buttons 
when checking out. That's the age that we're in today. We're returning this morning to the Gospel of Matthew And we're in a new section, chapters 11 through 13, where we're going to be dealing with responses to the kingdom of God as it has come and has been presented to us by Jesus Christ. We're going to be dealing with people as they react to Jesus himself. The question that we're going to see arise over and over again is how do they respond? Some of them have bought in to what Jesus is selling. And now they begin to question that purchase. Some are going to deny Jesus outright, and many are going to say, I'm not, I'm just not sure. I just don't know if he is the one. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is when it comes to being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, do you have buyer's remorse? With that in mind, let's read our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 11. Verses 1 to 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you looking for the one who is, or are, are you the one who is to come, or should we, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is, who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we seek to understand this text as complicated as it can be, we pray for wisdom and understanding. Allow us to understand the text that's in front of us and apply it to our lives so that we may be different as Christians. We may be more mature in faith, having encountered you through your word. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a little minute since we've been in Matthew, so I just want to briefly catch you up on where we are now and where we have been and what we've talked about. Matthew, you'll remember, has been establishing Jesus as the Christ, who is the rightful heir to the throne of David and the one that is going to successfully install God's kingdom on the earth. What Adam failed to do, what Moses and Joshua failed to do, what David and Solomon failed to do, what even Israel failed to do, Christ has done. Matthew introduces us to Jesus in chapters 1 to 3. And then in chapters 4 to 7, we get introduced to the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And what we find out at the beginning of chapter 5 in the Beatitudes is that the values of the kingdom of God are upside down from the values that the world is seeking. While the world values prosperity and wealth and power, what God values is the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, just to name a few. And so we get introduced to the kingdom of God and we discover that it's different than the world that we live in and its values are different. But then in chapters 8 to 10, we see the the tangible impact that the kingdom of heaven actually has on people's everyday lives. And the fact that Jesus is in fact the one who has the authority to bring those things to people. So what do we see? We see demons are cast out. We see people are healed. We see the dead are raised. And all of this validates Jesus' authority to bring the kingdom of God. Now, this next section that we're in of the Gospel of Matthew concerns people's responses to the kingdom, to the gospel message, to Jesus himself, to this kingdom that he's bringing. And it's not all positive. In fact, most of it's not positive. Some people deal in ambiguity. I don't know about that. They doubt a little bit. People are having reactions to the kingdom. And in fact, the ones who enjoy the kingdom, who celebrate the kingdom, who believe in the gospel, and who celebrate Jesus are some unlikely candidates. In fact, they're candidates that only make sense if, in fact, the kingdom is upside down. So we'll see people question whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. We'll see others adamant that he is the Messiah. And we'll see some just as adamant that he is not the Messiah. The text that we're looking at this morning, I think, can be very confusing in parts and a bit surprising in other parts. But in this passage, we see people responding to the kingdom and to the Messiah who's bringing it. And so this morning, we're going to look at all three responses to the kingdom and the Messiah who is bringing it. And Jesus is going to address all three responses in this passage. And the one that he's the most concerned about The response that he's the most concerned about may be a bit of a surprise. The first response to Jesus in his kingdom is going to, of course, be in John the Baptist. The response of doubt. The response of doubt with John the Baptist. This strikes us as a little bit strange, I think, because it comes from such an unlikely candidate. This is John the Baptist. Jesus has moved from teaching the twelve in the previous passage, and now he's beginning to teach and preach in cities, and John the Baptist is in prison. He was arrested, you'll remember, back in chapter 4, verse 12. We found that out early on. He's arrested, so he's in prison, 
And John obviously has some disciples that are coming back and they're checking on him as he's in prison. And he's sending them out. Many of them are probably following Jesus and coming back to report to him what all Jesus is doing and what's happening. And Matthew tells us in verse 2 that when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, John is clearly beginning to doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. But why? This is the man who stood in the river, commanding Jews to repent of their sins and baptizing people. This is the man who stood there on the seashore and looked at Jesus on the bank And told everyone there, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why is John the Baptist doubting? He's the one who said, he must increase, I must decrease. Now he's in prison and he's sending his disciples to ask, are you the one? Or should we look for another? We can only speculate as to why John was in a state of doubt because we're not told explicitly this is why John doubted, but we do have little more, uh, more than just a little evidence as to why it might have caused doubt in his heart as he's sitting there in prison. Now, there, there certainly were groups of Jews called zealots that are moving around the world in that day, and all of them wanted the Romans out. They wanted the Jews in power and in control over the land, and they wanted all the Romans to leave. And some speculate that John was in that camp, that he was one of the ones who wanted uh, all of the Romans out, and he wanted the Jews in. But it doesn't seem entirely consistent with John's character. He didn't seem overly concerned with who was ruling or who was reigning. This is the person, you'll remember, that ate locusts and honey that wore camel hair, that lived out in the wilderness, that everybody thought was crazy. He was going around preaching repentance of sin. He didn't seem overly concerned with one that would, that would be described as a zealot. Didn't seem overly concerned with the Roman government that was in town at the time. And when he did preach to the Romans, he was calling them out on sin just like he was calling the Jews out on sin. He didn't seem overly concerned with the Romans in general. John's preaching had much more to do with repentance of sin. And in fact, he seemed more concerned with the Jews than he ever did with the Romans. It was the Jewish ruling class, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees that are standing on the banks, the people that weren't truly Jews in their heart that John seemed more concerned with. In fact, that he called out from in the middle of the river. These are the people that John was preaching to when back in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, you should see that on the screen behind me. He said to them, These are the Pharisees and Sadducees standing up on the banks. He says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now, listen to this, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I Listen to his understanding of the Messiah to come. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Strong words. But then we get to Jesus' ministry. Jesus is going around, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing people. He's calming seas. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Where's the winnowing fork? Where's the axe? Shouldn't it be laid to the root by now? Where's the justice? Where is it? It seems to be absent from your ministry. It seems obvious what's causing John to stumble in prison. In fact, Matthew tells us, he says it was the deeds of Christ. What Jesus was doing, or perhaps more likely, what he wasn't doing. See, Jesus, I've already identified the roots. I know who they all are. Why not you come visit me in prison? I can tell you their names. Go take your axe. Lay it to the root. It's very easy. Wasn't that my job? Wasn't that what I was supposed to do? Prepare the way for you? I've identified the chaff. Just take your winnowing fork and run it through. Burn them to the ground. To which Jesus responds, but what about mercy? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The poor have good news preached to them. All of these things are specifically stated that the Messiah will do. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 35, 5-6 there. And he pushes back on John. Don't be offended by the ministry of the Messiah. I can easily identify with John. We'll see in a few chapters that John is in prison because he called Herod Antipas out on his sin. I can imagine that after sitting a while in a prison cell, you might begin to wonder when the axe and the winnowing fork were coming. Jesus, when are you going to roll back the sky? When are we going to get that whole bit? When are you going to sit on the judge's bench? When are you going to lay the wicked bare before your face? So that you can judge them. I've been there. In the middle of a particularly trying situation. You've called out to God in prayer. A thousand times. And all you seem to hear back is silence. Lord, why are you being so silent about this right now? You know how long I've been in this situation. 
Can you feel where I'm at? Do you hear me when I'm praying to you? You don't seem to be responding in any way. Can you not give me relief of some kind? Then the doubt begins to creep in. Maybe the reason he's silent right now is because he's not real. Church, can we just sit there for a second? Can we just acknowledge and admit that doubt is a part of the Christian struggle? We want people to believe that we never doubt. And yet here's John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets, sitting in a prison cell, doubting that Jesus is the Christ. Of course we doubt. All sin has its root in unbelief. All sin. And yet so many times our churches feel doubt. People in our churches feel doubt. And think it means that they're not disciples of Jesus. Have you ever considered that your doubt may not be a problem of evidence? But it may be that the real Jesus is not who you thought he was. Sometimes that causes a deeper kind of doubt than mere evidence. You have a bit of buyer's remorse. I got into this thing, but then I didn't realize what I was getting into. Perhaps you were told when you became a Christian, hey, it's going to be difficult. There's going to be trying times ahead. But you underestimated how dark the valley really was. Man, the, the desert just seems to be a lot drier than I thought it would be. Perhaps you were misled into thinking that once you became a Christian, your life would be much smoother. Maybe that you were convinced to follow Jesus by some prosperity gospel preaching liar who basically told you, look, once you confess Christ, once you come to Christ, your life is going to be great. In fact, after that, he aims to prosper you, to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And anytime you suffer, it's because you lack faith. In either case, you get to the valley, you get to the desert, and you end up thinking, why is the Lord not acting? Why is he not doing something? See, we're frequently offended by Jesus' ministry. He seems far more patient with our enemies than we are. Have you ever noticed that? He seems far more patient with our enemies than we are. He seems to have a different opinion than me, especially when it comes to thorns in the flesh. Have you noticed that? I get a thorn in the flesh, and all I wanted is to be removed. I want a surgeon to come in right then. Come on, Jesus. Come in right then and surgically remove that thorn in the flesh. And it appears Jesus prefers a more holistic approach. I don't want mint oil. 
I want surgery now. Give me some penicillin, something. But then when I want a more holistic approach, perhaps when it comes to my idols in my own life, he seems to prefer surgery. And the kind that requires a long recovery, lots of rehab, lots of tears as he goes about smashing my idols. Jesus' words to John are the same words to us. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, faith is trust. We're trusting in the plans of God, even if they mean that in the end we're beheaded in our prison cell like John is about to be. We're trusting that his plans we cannot possibly fathom all the many things that he's up to at this very moment. We're trusting that it would blow our minds if we considered all the many things that he's using in your life right now to conform you into the image of Christ. Do you remember any good things that he's ever done to you in your life? It's a good exercise. Just think back on all the things that you can think of that he has done for you, that he has provided for you, that there is no other way that that thing could have come about except by the hand of God himself having blessed you with it. Think about those things. Now think of all the many things that had to fall in line in order to produce that. All the things that you can possibly connect to it. Well, I had to do this and I had to go there and I had to move here and I had to do that. I had to have that job. I had to make that much money. I had to do all of these things. Inevitably, you're going to be leaving out about a billion things that you'll never consider and you'll never know. Now, think about the situations you're currently in. Do you not think that he's doing a billion other things right now? Church, he's doing the same things that he was doing back then. Things that you would never imagine. You wouldn't understand if he told you. Things that he is producing in your life. How foolish it is of us to be offended by the actions of a perfectly wise and holy and loving God. Second response that I want us to see is the response of violence. The response of violence. The disciples go away. The disciples of John go away. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to explain to the crowd who's no doubt listening to this interaction who John was. And by telling them who John is, he's explaining who he actually is, who Jesus is. Now, many of the people in the crowds there were not only alive during John's ministry, of course, but many of them are following Jesus because they originally followed John. They were John's disciples first, and then they became Jesus' disciples. John was the one to originally promote Jesus right there in front of everybody. And so he asks the people there that are listening, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man in soft clothing? So he's establishing for everyone there that recognizes that John the Baptist was a special kind of individual. You wouldn't have gone out into the wilderness for any other reason but that you recognize there was something different about this man. There was something different about this man. The audience that once followed John and is now following Jesus, I'm sure, 
probably heard the disciples of John coming up and questioning Jesus at that moment. And so they probably have lots of questions about John, about his faith. What's the status of John in prison? What about you, Jesus? What does that say about you that they're questioning you? And so Jesus is addressing this right right then and there. He says, hey, this man, John, he isn't some fickle man like a reed blowing in the wind. He's not someone that just changes his mind at a whim. He isn't soft like the clothing that's worn in the house where he's right now kept prisoner. No, John was the real deal. And you went out to hear him preach because you recognized that he was the real deal. That's the only reason you went out there. John was a prophet. Not only was he a prophet, he was the subject of prophecy. So he gives two references to passages in the Old Testament in Malachi. First is Malachi 3.1. He says that in verse 10 there. He references Malachi 3.1. And then in verse 14, he references Malachi 4.5, which both speak to John the Baptist and his ministry. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Chronologically, it's the last book. About 400 years before Jesus was ever born, Malachi is prophesying. And through Malachi, God says that before the Messiah comes, he's going to send his messenger to prepare the way before the Messiah. And God refers to him as Elijah, not Elijah reincarnate, but a type of Elijah. John's works, his character, his disposition was just like that of Elijah. And so Elijah is going to come preparing the way for the Messiah. So Jesus is not only affirming that John is this character, but he's also affirming that he is this character. So since John is Elijah and comes to prepare the way before the Messiah, what does that make Jesus? That makes him the Messiah. So he establishes John as the greatest of all Old Testament prophets or even Old Testament people. But you see what he says there? Even the quietest member of Emmanuel Baptist Church is more significant in the kingdom than John the Baptist. Why? Because John was looking forward to the Messiah. John was preaching about what God would do. But the most insignificant person in the kingdom of heaven, the quietest member of any church, is now worshiping Christ because of what God has already done. They're now looking at the Messiah himself and proclaiming the Messiah to the world around them. So their ministry is even more significant. You have the benefit of knowing Jesus as Savior. While the prophets from John all the way back to Moses took it on faith that Jesus was coming. They trusted that God would one day provide a Messiah. But you are trusting in the Messiah. So he gathers John together with all the Old Testament prophets before. I think that's the significance here. He gathers all John with all the prophets that came before him. John is the greatest among all of those prophets in the Old Testament. But the reason that I think that is important is because if you'll look at verse 12, it's by far the most confusing verse in probably the whole book of Matthew, but especially in this passage. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Now, this is confusing for a number of reasons, but 
let's just look at the problems that are here that we don't really understand or that are hard to understand. First of all, he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now. John's still alive. He's still alive. He's in prison right at this very moment. From the, and, and then even if Jesus meant, well, from the days when John was preaching in active ministry, what was that, like three weeks ago? Maybe, okay, let's stretch it, maybe a year ago. It seems really strange to refer to someone like they're incredibly past tense when they're very much present tense. This is basically like saying, for the last few months, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. Well, there's another problem there because the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence for the last few months. Who besides John are you talking about? Is there somebody else that suffered violence? It seems like John and Jesus are the only ones preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Has anyone else suffered for this besides John, who is in imprisonment now? Well, some people suggest that verse 12 is a parenthesis, that Matthew is making a statement about the state of the church at that moment when he's writing the gospel. That it's sort of a parenthesis. There's no way to indicate that in Greek to put parentheses around something. So they just wrote it and we just have to figure it out. And so maybe it's true that Matthew's just saying, look, since the days of John the Baptist until this very moment, we're still facing persecution. I could see that. But I think it could also be that Jesus is lumping John the Baptist in with all of the Old Testament prophets before. And he's saying the days of John, basically our way of saying the Old Testament days, the B.C. days, we might say. John is the head of all of those people in the Old Testament. And from the days of the Old Testament until now, the kingdom has suffered violence. Some of you may have there has been coming violently um, which is also possible. I think that what Jesus is basically saying is that ever since the kingdom of God has broken through into this world, the powerful people in the world have sought to crush it with oppression. From the day that the kingdom started breaking through, the powerful people rose up in opposition to it and tried to squash it out. That's all the way back from the days of Moses all the way up till now, this very day, where John is sitting in prison right now because Herod Antipas has put him there. In fact, all the prophets and the law, until John, the new Elijah, they've all met with the same opposition. So if you're keeping score at home then, Jesus' message of the kingdom is met by first by doubt by John the Baptist and he offers a gentle rebuke to that doubt. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. It's met by complete violence. And Jesus says, this has always been the case. People have always tried to squash it. But then we see a third response starting in verse 16. And it's the one that Jesus seems to be the most concerned with. And it's the response of apathy. He says in verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like a child sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Flutes are played at weddings and celebrations and dirges are sung at funerals. The response to both for the generation that is hearing both John and Jesus 
preaching and seeing Jesus' miracles and his work is apathy. See, I think this is particularly important because all of the people that are sitting there listening to Jesus do not like the Roman oppression that they are under. None of them like it. All of them see the Romans as a threat to the kingdom of God. John's disciples offer a reminder to them that one of their beloved prophets that they all went to hear preaching is sitting in a jail cell because of a Roman buffoon, Herod Antipas. They all want the Messiah to come in and drive out the enemy, send them out running and screaming to establish his rule. But Jesus seems to be saying, you're the enemy. Jesus seems to be saying that violent oppression to the kingdom that the kingdom has faced is of less immediate concern than the overwhelming apathy in the hearts of the people that are supposed to respond to the message of the kingdom with repentance. And yet they don't. The people that should be responding to the message of the gospel that don't respond with dancing or with mourning. Instead, they just sit there. He says, John was like the dirge. The, the morning. He came neither eating, meaning he fasted. He didn't drink, meaning he didn't touch alcohol. And you said, well, I'm not responding to him. He's crazy. Have you seen him? He wears camel's hair. And he eats bugs. He's crazy. Then Jesus comes celebrating, playing the flute, celebrating that the Messiah has come. He's eating, meaning he's not fasting. He's drinking, meaning he's drinking alcohol. And they say, I'm not following him. You see that guy? He befriends lowlifes and drinks alcohol. Glutton and a drunkard. Yet how do you know John and Jesus are both representing the, and bringing the true kingdom of God? Because John is suffering for it in prison and Jesus is healing the blind and raising the dead and cleansing the lepers. Wisdom, he says, is justified by our deeds. See, in spite of the fact that Jesus and John are clearly representing the message of the gospel, the generation hearing do not respond in repentance. This is clearly the overriding concern for Jesus because in the very next passage that we're going to be in next week, he's dealing with condemnation of those that don't respond in repentance to the preaching of the gospel. And he's going to lift up the ones that do respond in repentance. But then the question that you have to ask yourself, how do you respond? How do you respond to the gospel? Is it with apathy and lethargy? Or is it in repentance? To the lost person, to the person that does not currently follow Jesus, You've heard what Jesus has done. We preach about it every single week here in this church. You've heard about what He has done. 
Perhaps you've even sought it out on your own. The claims of the resurrection of Christ are valid and true. The most well-represented fact in human history that he rose from the dead. You've heard those claims time and time again. You may have invested those cl- investigated those claims before, and you come away going, yeah, you know what? They're, they're telling the truth. But then what do you do? Do you sit motionless? Do you sit with sin still on your heart? Or do you turn to God in repentance? Forgive me for my unbelief. What about to the follower of Christ? Are you constantly worried about everyone else's sin? Is everyone else always the problem? Is your prayer always, God, will you change their heart? Will you change their heart? Will you make their heart something different? Something more that I can stand? Something that I can be around and tolerate? Please, Lord, change their heart. For some reason, never asking the Lord to change your heart. Maybe it's you. Where's the point where you come to confess your sin? God, change my heart. Let me repent of my own sin. To the doubter, the one who's questioning what they got into? Do you ever repent? Do you ever seek out understanding? Do you ever investigate the things that concern you the most? You ever read what people have to say about those things? Or are you content to sit in doubt? Do you ever repent for that? Forgive me for my doubt. Forgive me for not doubting my doubt. Forgive me for giving it such credibility in my life and never investigating its claims. Don't remain in ignorance. Move toward Christ. The only appropriate response to the proclamation of the kingdom, to the gospel of Christ, is repentance. Jesus even told us this at the beginning, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are many among us, at times myself even, that doubt, struggle with the evil of the world around us, with the so-called evidences that the world points to. We doubt, we struggle, we fail to trust. Perhaps we're in the midst of a very painful situation. And even if we don't doubt your existence, we might doubt your goodness, we might doubt your faithfulness to us, or we might doubt that you even include one of us among you. We ask for your forgiveness. God, please give to us confidence, assurance, 
bring to our hearts a kind of revival that wakes us from our apathy. May we not leave here, leave this place, and be the same way we were when we came in. May we not only grow in wisdom, not only grow in being conformed into the image of Christ, may we grow in boldness as we speak of your truth in the world around us. May we grow to trust you more, knowing that your plans and your promises are good. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.